Hey, everybody. It's good to be with you. We are continuing our sermon series on the ABCs of InTown and looking at what does it mean that we are a church here in the city of Portland? Why are we here? How did we get established and for what purpose and what vision is leading us? And so we're going to take a look at part of that by looking at our mission statement. And we've been doing this each and every week, taking the primary words of the mission statement and unpacking them a little bit. So this morning, we're looking at the aspect of seeking, that we are all in process, that we're on a journey, that we're seeking something. So In Town's mission statement is that we are a community seeking to embody the historic Christian gospel in the city of Portland. And this is our gospel reading. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who, who had given such authority to man. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's an important anniversary next month. I'm sure that you are all aware. It's the 30th anniversary of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It was one of the first uh, PG-13 movies that I saw, at least with my parents. Um, and I watched it multiple times that summer, and I can't tell you how many times I've seen it since then. Probably shouldn't tell you. Um, but one of my favorite characters is not actually Ferris Bueller, but it's Ed Rooney, the principal. And He's the one who is constantly outsmarted by uh, Ferris Bueller, constantly embarrassed by him. And some of his best lines are him talking to his secretary, who is this sort of zany, free spirit lady. And her name is Grace, which I love, because Ed Rooney, by contrast, is certainly the law. So the law says to Grace... What is so dangerous about a guy like Ferris Bueller is that he gives good kids bad ideas. And he goes on to say, he threatens my ability to govern this student body. This could very well be the scribes and the religious leaders talking about Jesus. He's dangerous. He's a rule breaker. And he threatens their ability to govern effectively. And the problem is that, like Ed Rooney, they're right. They're correct. Not just about Jesus being dangerous to the system, but they were also right about a number of theological and ethical issues. But they miss Jesus. You see, there's nothing wrong with being right unless you're right about the wrong things. Well, Matthew begins to tell us about the ministry of, the, of Jesus as it began in chapter 4. And Jesus, he says, went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, curing every disease and every sickness among the people, healing those who were demon-afflicted, 
and those who are paralyzed. You see, Jesus never uh, ignores the physical brokenness. He doesn't ignore the fact that someone is struggling in their daily life, in their body. He's aware of it, and he honors that, and he wants to move into those places of hurt. And that's the way that Matthew begins to tell the story of Jesus' ministry, that this is what he does. This is what he is about. And then we get three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching, his ethical instruction, his vision of a new countercultural community. And then we get to chapter 8, and we need to remember here that the chapter markers are not there in the original text. We put those there. And so this is kind of one long narrative that Matthew is drawing out for us. And in chapter 8, he seems to be picking back up that train of thought in chapter 4, almost to say, well, as I was saying about Jesus doing all of these miraculous things, and he begins to give us examples, specific stories about how Jesus healed a leper. And then he goes on to talk about how he healed a man from a distance, and then he calms a storm, and he confronts and casts out a demon. And now in our passes in chapter 9, he's healing someone of paralysis. But what we see if we're looking is an escalation of Jesus' self-revelation, of what Matthew is telling us about the power and the person of who Jesus is. Do you see this escalation? He goes from power over sickness then to power over the earth and its elements. We see then power over the demonic realm the spiritual realm, and now over even sin himself, itself. He is ratcheting up his self-revelation. And if we're here this morning and we're wrestling with who Jesus is, we're wrestling whether we can call ourselves a Christian, if we're ready for that, we need to see here that Jesus' self-revelation is much more than a spiritual guru or a teacher or a rabbi with some innovative ideas. What he is saying, what he is claiming is that he is the ultimate master over the spiritual and the physical realms. Maybe we're here wrestling with that, but we need to wrestle with who Jesus says he actually is and not who we want him to be or imagine him to be. Now, it's helpful here that we have three gospel accounts of this event. We have the one that Matthew gives us, but we also have the one in the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke. And Matthew kind of tells it in a straight, in a very straight way, straightforward way. It's very bare bones, but Mark embellishes a little bit or tells the story with a little bit more, uh, he fleshes it out. And there you have it as the story that's told in many Bible stories, in many children's Bible stories, the story of courage, that these friends carry this man up on a roof, and they lower him down in front of Jesus. And apparently something of a crowd had gathered, and the scribes were there too, and the scribes were the teachers, the preservers, the copyists of the law, and they were watching Jesus. They were monitoring him. It's as if Ed Rooney is in the hallway of that high school and he's watching for Ferris Bueller to make a mistake, to say something out of line so he can pounce. And what do they see? What do the scribes see? Well, we see that this man is lowered down in the presence of Jesus, and Jesus sees their faith. It says he sees the men who lowered him down, their faith, and then he begins to care 
for the paralytic. What do we know about the paralytic's faith? Nothing. We're not told anything about the paralytic. We don't know if he knows who Jesus is, if he's a willing participant, if he's asked for this. The text seems to indicate that he wasn't. He wasn't asking for it. This wasn't his idea. He was carried. If not against his will, it doesn't appear that he was the one that actually hatched this plan. The friends seemed to have had this idea, and he literally came along for the ride. And I think this because of the way that Jesus addresses the man. He sees his friend's faith, his friend's actions, and he says to the man, take courage, son. Take heart. Don't be afraid. He sees the face, faith of the friends, but he also notices the discomfort of this man. Perhaps just sheer embarrassment of being in this position. None of us want to be helpless in this way. Can you imagine yourself in this situation? There's this great crowd gathered in this home, and everyone's there, and they're listening to this rabbi, and then out of the roof, you get lowered down on this mat and disturb the whole event, and all eyes are on you. And in fact, not just on you, but they're on your disability. They're on your weakest spot. Everyone's noticing you. I would be completely uncomfortable in that situation. I hate being dependent upon other people. And it's not very American to be in a position of dependency. We run from that. It makes us very uncomfortable. So maybe we can understand this guy's discomfort. But what does Jesus say? Take heart. Take courage. Don't be embarrassed. Relax. You're not in trouble. I'm glad that you're here. In fact, what he tells this man, that he is finally in the place where he can have his deepest needs met, where he can be made whole, not only physically, but spiritually. Take heart, my son. And then he says something astounding, something astonishing. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. We get the scribe's reaction. And if you know their sort of mojo, you understand it. They say, this is blasphemy. How dare he? But I think we can safely assume that everyone was a little bit taken aback by this. Jesus, you're missing the point here. Paralyzed, come on. How much sinning could he possibly be doing presently? He's paralyzed. We brought him to you so that you could heal his physical body. And Jesus probably knows that he's going to eventually heal him and cause him to walk again. But he says, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus takes physical disease and disability very seriously, and he is very empathetic towards people that are suffering. But what we see here is a sort of hierarchy of need. They were here seeking physical healing for their friends, but Jesus, friend, but Jesus wants to heal him completely, holistically. And Jesus diagnoses the deeper problem that this man has is his sin. It is his separation from the care and the love and relationship with God himself. But notice, though there is a very deep tradition in Judaism at that time that suffering was directly related to one's personal sin, there is no suggestion on Jesus' part 
that the paralytic's physical suffering was related to a specific sin or was due to guilt over his sin. Jesus' pronouncement of pardon is the recognition that man can be, that this man can be genuinely whole only when the breach that's been occasioned by his sin has been healed by God's total forgiveness. That is, when the creator of the universe stands before you and says, take courage, son. Take courage, daughter. Your sins are forgiven. Have you experienced that? I mean, really, have you experienced that? Can you imagine that for your personal life? Jesus standing before you and telling you your sins are forgiven. Do you go through life with the confidence and the conviction that God is okay with you? That itself can be a scandalous statement in some Christian circles, but friends, I want you to believe it. I want that to sink down. I want you to wrestle with that, especially if that sends off some sort of sparks of disagreement. That can't be true. I want you to wrestle with it, and I want you to believe it. That God's wrath towards sin is not towards you. It is toward the fact that sin exists at all. It is toward the fact that your sin is destroying his loved one, you. What death is to the body, sin is to the soul. And God wants to stop that. He wants to stop us from destroying ourselves and destroying other people. What death is to the body, sin is to the soul. It's, as Dorothy Sayers says, a deep interior dislocation of the soul. Instead of being located on God and His provision of grace, we locate our souls on controlling and manipulating our situation and other people. We manipulate other people to gain approval and affection that God longs to give us. We take healthy practices of spirituality and we turn them into a religion whereby we justify ourselves before others and before God. We become addicts to our own ego rather than addicts to the love of God Himself. The person who really understands the nature of sin, the person who really is ready for forgiveness, is the person who can say, the way that I have been going about life is, simply, is not simply wrong. It's not simply disobedient, but I have been living out of a false self. I've live it, been living out of my ego's desire to control my life, and it's left me paralyzed. It's left me exhausted. It's left me conflicted, guilty, afraid of God. Christianity, you see, is not about kicking off a new spiritual regimen, a new set of practices to try and dislocate our own sin because this can leave the false self, the ego, just as entrenched or even more so than it was before. It's the imperial ego that has to go and the only, only a recognition of our own powerlessness to do so has the power to do the job correctly. We've said it repeatedly during this sermon that grace flows down, or this series, grace flows downhill. 
the grace pools at the bottom end of the bell curve. And that's because until and unless there is a person, and an event, a conflict, a relationship, a situation that emerges in your life, in my life, that we cannot manage, we will never meet the true manager. What's the picture? This guy is being lowered through the roof of this house. He is paralyzed. And this is the picture of Christian spirituality, of Christian dependence. And this is what we mean when we say that in town is a church, a community that is seeking, that we are seeking spiritual wholeness, not through power, but through surrender. That there is a recognition implicit in who we are as a church, that we are all in process, that none of us have it all figured out, and that that's okay. Because insofar as we recognize that, then in town can be a place of refreshing, a place of humility, a place of openness, a place of welcome. We can be a church that mimics Jesus' own welcome. Notice in this passage, no one asks for anything. No one asks for forgiveness. This man doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't come in saying these big, long prayers of contrition. He's not crying over his sin. He doesn't even ask Jesus for forgiveness. Yet Jesus looks at him and says, take courage, your sins are forgiven. Isn't this telling us something important about who God is? That Jesus is not confined by our formulaic understanding of how things are supposed to work? That the grace of God is not contained and confined by our theological systems and expectations, by our rituals? Instead of, you see, prying and wrestling God's love from His hands by our moral behavior, by our ritual, our theological correctness. Grace overflows from the very center of who Jesus is. Jesus is not withholding. He is eager to bless. In fact, I think we can say that Jesus can't wait to pour out grace upon people. His mercy is looking for opportunities. But what seems like glorious good news, wouldn't that be amazing? Were that true? That Jesus is seeking you in order to pour out His mercy and His grace upon you? That is glorious good news. Yet it's not something for some reason that the scribes want to hear. And maybe it's because it threatens their ability to effectively govern, makes things messy. They say this is blasphemy because Jesus is doing something only God can do, and that is forgive sins. And like Ed Rooney, they're right. They're right. Do you see what Jesus is claiming? Matthew has traced this escalating assessment of the person and the power of Jesus. He heals the sick he demonstrates his power over physical creation. He calms a storm. He demonstrates his power over the demonic and the spiritual realm. He casts out demons, and they run from him in fear. But you see, these are all things that in the Jewish mind that powerful rabbis, powerful prophets could do in certain circumstances. Jesus does all of these things, but he takes it to another level, and he's, he forgives 
sin on his own authority. That's something that only God can do. And you see, Jesus is not only claiming to be or to represent God, but he is claiming to be God. And if that is so, good news, because we get to see in Jesus who God is. We get to see that the revelation of Jesus is the revelation of God himself, that he longs to grant pardon, that he looks for opportunities to extend grace. Robert Davis was a police officer in New Orleans in the 1970s, and somewhere along the way, he started to cut corners, and he started taking bribes to allow people to get off when he arrested them and to set them free, bartered with people. And he heard that an internal affairs charge was going to be made against him, and so he ran. He fled, and he became a fugitive living in the woods, first of all in Louisiana and then all around the country because he was always worried that the police were going to catch up with him. And at first, when he was in the woods, he would think of his newborn son, he would think of his siblings, but after a while, he got much more comfortable being out there. And after about a year, he says he wasn't scared anymore. He camped in every state in the mainland. After five years, he says he was heartless. After 10 years, a true animal. No feelings at all. And after 15 years, being a fugitive felt normal. Now, maybe that's a bit of an extreme example, but being a fugitive can f- feel normal for all of us in some ways. Don't we often feel that we're on the run from something, that the metaphorical cops are out to get us? from a person who disapproves of us and we run from them and we avoid them, from a bridge that we burned in a relationship years ago, from a God who we imagine is constantly disappointed in us. And maybe there are people in our lives who, for them, we're the cops. We're the ones that they're on the run from. Our need to be right, our stern response to their sin causes them to withdraw, causes them to hide. Spiritually speaking, these habits of hiding become so sticky and pervasive in our lives that we begin to lose sight of who we have been made to be, and we begin to live out of that divided, false self. The same thing happened to Robert Davis. He had lived free in the woods, but he wasn't free at all. His freedom had become, paradoxically, his own incarceration. His evasion of punishment had not stemmed from the punishment. It had only turned him inward, devouring what humanity he had until he could no longer recognize the monster that remained. He no longer knew himself. And he says, no matter how you slice it, a life without pardon is a life of imprisonment. We turn inward, away from help, and paradoxically away from ourselves. Forgiveness calls the wayward out of their hiding, out of their hideout, and makes them, begins to make them human again. Robert Davis went back to his old stomping grounds, the police department in New Orleans. This was 22 years later. But he had been so eaten up and so stunned by the revelation inside that he was not who he was, that he was a monster. He was on the run. 
So he goes back to his old department, and they begin to run his name through the computers, but they couldn't find any evidence of his crimes. But exhausted by years of hiding, he admitted not only to the crimes that he was going to be charged with those many years ago, but he admitted the ones that they didn't know about. The judge, in hearing his honest confession, told him of the years that he would need to serve. But then, in a miraculous move of pardon, he granted him a suspension of his sentence. Robert Davis was finally free. In a lifetime of trying to fly under the radar, what a relief that that radar was finally turned off once and for all. Friends, that's offered to us by Jesus. Our fear of being under the radar, our fear of disappointing God, can be turned off. Jesus offers that to us. You see, God has the authority to dredge up all that makes us hide, to watch us replay the tapes of all of our sins and see all of our sickness and all the ways that we've hidden us. He has the authority to do do that. He's God, and He made, made us. He has the right to make us serve a sentence, but He also has the authority to wipe it all away and to say, you are pardoned. Go in peace. Take courage, son or daughter. Your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we wrestle with this incredible good news that you offer to wipe our slate clean, that you offer to forgive us of all of our sins, not in part, but the whole. Lord, I pray that that would engender in our hearts a desire to live in freedom towards holiness and towards your life, towards mimicking you, that we would begin to extend grace to others in the way that you extend grace to us that it would not be a hall pass to sin in any way that we care to, but let it be, Lord, the, the privilege to serve you out of gratitude, to turn away from those broken ways that we hide and that we manipulate others, that we live out of our false self and our ego wanting to control our lives. Let us instead turn ourselves over to you and be forgiven whether it's the first time this morning or the thousandth time, I pray that we would seek you, that we would find rest, that we would find courage because of your pardon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.